is a little bit more like a lecture than a sermon, because we're going to be summarizing the last, I think, 14 weeks of, uh, of a sermon series. I think this is the longest series we've ever done, and we thought it deserved a summary. Before we jump into that, I just want to say that I miss you. I wasn't here for the last two weeks. Last week, I was with Debbie in Oregon, uh, preaching at the church there, and then the week before that was in Toronto. And uh, Pastor Bert gives greetings from Toronto. It's just great to be part of a another Canadian church, and see all that God is doing there. But it's always great to come back home. So I hope you all have this. This is what we're going to be going through today. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into this and summarize everything you need to know about how to change your life in half an hour. It's going to be amazing. Father, I thank you so much for this amazing family that I get to be a part of it. Thank you for your truth, for your truth that sets us free and changes us from the inside out. And I ask that in this time, it wouldn't simply be the uh, delivery of information, but that you would speak to our hearts, give us hope, and show us how to be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the way that we started this sermon was with a radical thought, and that is the purpose for wanting to change or improve our lives is less about personal happiness and more about love. So I think the primary reason why we would want to change or we listen to other people's reasons for change is they just want to be happier. And what we suggested was that happiness is a symptom, not a root. And actually, the harder that you pursue happiness, the farther away from it you'll become. The best way to become happy is not to pursue it at all, but to pursue love. And as you have a loving relationship with God and others, you become happy almost accidentally. And what this means is that uh, suffering or sadness or confusion or whatever other reason we would have to change actually is not the point. Uh, what God invites us into is to say, even if I'm sad, even if I'm suffering, how can this moment be redeemed through your love? And as we find God in those places... Even if we stay sad, it's been redeemed and it actually becomes a life-giving place. So the purpose of change is love. And then we talked about the three obstacles to experiencing and walking in God's love. If we can summarize, I think that we have uh, three kinds of problems as we try to become more loving people and walk in God's ways. We might have a truth problem a repentance problem, or a faith problem. This is a very helpful way to think about the issues that are going on in our life. Now, uh, if you look at the diagram, you can see a little circle with a dotted line uh, going across, behavior, experiences, and feelings. Typically, when we are uh, trying to change, we work on one of three things. We work on our behavior. We try to become nicer people or happier people or more well-adjusted. And so we'll, uh, we'll make resolutions and, and try hard to do those things. But eventually, uh, you know, it doesn't go very well. And what we realize is that maybe we need some new experiences, that we have past experiences that weren't very great. And so we try to find a new set of friends and a better church and uh, switch families if that's possible or whatever it is. And so we look for new experiences. 
And, but you can't find a perfect set of experiences. Or we try to change our feelings. We just try to have happier thoughts and think more positively and listen to self-help uh, you know, YouTube videos and try to feel better about ourselves and about our circumstances. But our feelings are actually just an accurate description of what's going on inside. And what we discover is that we can't actually change to the degree that we want our experiences, our feelings, or our behaviors. And that's because there's something deeper that's driving all of those, and it's our beliefs. This becomes the first real problem. Uh, now, again, follow me. What if it's true that your experiences or circumstances aren't your problem? What if the reason why you're struggling in life is not because of the family of origin that you have, or the work environment that you have, or the class that you're taking? What if that's actually not the biggest problem? What if the biggest problem is not your feelings? Or even your behaviors? What if the thing that's really driving all of that is what we believe about those things? Our beliefs are more powerful than our experiences, our feelings, or our behaviors. And as we change our beliefs, our thoughts, we find that we become a different kind of person. So that becomes the first uh, point of change, is that we need to look at what the truth is. Now, if you see in your notes, you see that there's a one and a two. So the way that change would occur, number one, is we're honest about the patterns in our life, about our experiences, feelings, and behaviors. We're honest about that. If you're not honest... Uh, you'll never change. The opposite, opposite of honesty is blame. It's my circumstances fault. It's genetic. Uh, it's God because I prayed four times and he didn't come through and change me the way that I expected him to. Uh, honesty says, what am I, what are the patterns can I be honest about the patterns that I'm caught up in? These trying to change things and ignoring my beliefs. What are those beliefs? And I need to be honest about those. Honesty, if you go for counseling, the first thing that a counselor is going to help you do is to be honest about where you're really at and not have an exaggerated view that everything's fine or a catastrophic view that it's called catastrophic thinking, that everything is so messed up it's beyond hope. It's going to be to be honest. So if you'd like to change, the first is a truth problem. The first kind of truth is to be honest. And to be honest in particular about the patterns that I'm caught in. Now, here's why it's helpful to think about patterns. Because uh, typically, we do like to do this blame thing. And so if I'm counseling somebody, the thing that I want to do, they'll tell me is called a presenting issue. The issue that they come in with, that they're struggling with. And what I'm typically going to do, now you know what I'm doing when I, you meet with me, but uh, what I'm typically going to do is go, that's interesting. And I'm going to say, where else do you experience that cycle? And if we can discover that we actually experience it at work and at home and maybe when I'm alone and back when I was a kid, whenever, if I can help you generalize the experience you'll discover that the only thing that's in common with all those different experiences is you. 
And what that helps is it helps you not to blame. So it's not just my home life. It's not just the person that I'm living with. Actually, I'm the common denominator in that cycle. Super helpful. Uh, we mostly avoid that, but it's horrible if we avoid it because the only person that we can change is ourselves. And so if we're always trying to change our circumstances or other things, we, ha we don't have the power to change all of those things. But God has given us the grace to look at ourselves. So we're honest about patterns. And once we are honest about those patterns, we look at, uh, in, in the beliefs that we have that drive those patterns, we then, number two, evaluate the source and outcome of our beliefs. We evaluate, so we know as we, you know, this is back, I think in November we started this series. We know that the way that we evaluate our beliefs is according to two things. The first is the source of those beliefs. So we ask ourselves the question, where did that thought or belief come from? And if it doesn't come from God's word, we should question that belief. Because it's an unreliable and unworthy source to define us. Now this is tremendously helpful. Because instead of analyzing every belief and, and weighing the pros and cons of it, we simply ask, where did that idea come from? And if it's not supported by God's word, it's a suspect thought or belief. Then the second thing that we do is, okay, okay so it, you know, we have to see where it came from, and then we see where that belief leads us. And that's the outcome of that belief. Now, here's how you can discover whether your beliefs are healthy or not. Do they lead you toward giving and receiving love? If your thought or belief takes you away from receiving God's love or giving God's love to others, that's a, that's a lie. It's a deceptive thought. It's not true. That's super helpful. I know that when a thought is coming into my head that separates me from God or others, I know that the source of that thought is not Jesus. And so I, I challenge that thought I evaluate it, I assess it according to what God says is true. And what God says is true always leads me closer to God and closer to others. Super helpful way to think. You evaluate your thoughts according to the source of those thoughts and the outcome of those thoughts. Now, we threw in a little wrinkle in this idea of, of God's truth being the source of all that's good and right. Because what we discovered is as, as we read the Bible, that sometimes the truths in the Bible contradict one another. And so sometimes it says to turn the other cheek and to just absorb people being insulting to us. And other times it says go and correct them. Sometimes it says just receive the love and forgiveness of God. Other times it says be responsible and do something. And what we discovered in God's word, follow me, this is be the, I think the trickiest part of the talk today, is that if you just take one side of God's truth, it always becomes unloving. We say that God's love is comprised of two qualities, mercy and justice. If your favorite understanding of love is all about mercy, I'm just going to love and accept myself, I'm going to love and accept everybody else, 
And even if they do stuff wrong, I'm just going to forgive them. And we're all just trying anyways. And we should just be open-minded, inclusive people. If you, if you only camp on one side of God's truth, you end up becoming unloving. Because if we're hyper-accepting, we're not, uh, we're not honoring when people do something that hurts another person, and they should change. Not all behavior is good behavior. We shouldn't accept everything. We shouldn't accept everything inside of us or inside of others. That's not loving. So if we're only mercy, that's a problem. If we're only justice, where we point out everything that's wrong, and us and others, that's not super loving. I don't know if you've noticed that. This is a habit of yours. Um, I'm just here to help you. Actually, when I was in Oregon, somebody comes up to me and says, that was really good, except for this, this, and this. And uh, so I talked to the pastor afterwards. I go, do you know this guy? He goes, yeah, he does that every week. <laughs> he just comes up every week and says, super good job. I would change these one to four things. Uh, a little unloving. You know, just hypercritical. So, but you go, but that's in the Bible. It says to point out the faults of others. So there, I have a Bible verse to support what I do. Love is found in the tension of two equally biblical truths. Sorry to make it difficult for you. It'd be nice to just, you know, pick one. But the way that we become loving people is we live in the tension of two truths, and it's where we find Jesus, it's where we find his truth, and it's where we find his love. So, that's the truth problem, is I don't know what's true. I don't know how to think about what I believe. That's a truth problem. Now, if we say, I do know what's true, I know what alienates me, I know where it came from, and I know in the tension of mercy and justice, or whatever it is, I, I think I know what's best. You've now conquered the truth problem. That's not a problem for you anymore. Now we move on to a repentance problem. And basically, repentance is, or not repenting is, I know what the truth is, I, I just don't want to do it. I know what's wrong, I know what's right. I just, I don't feel like it. Repentance is a desire problem. Our first problem is a thinking problem. Our second problem is a desire problem. Yeah, I know what true, what's true. I'm sure you've met people, and maybe you've been this yourself. I know that I have. I know what's true, I just don't want to do it. I, uh, I'm just more interested in fulfilling my self-centered desires than I am God's desires. So how do we work this out? So we know what the truth is, but we can avoid love and relationship, you'll see in your notes, through swinging between two extremes, and we call this religion and rebellion. Religion is a false sense of responsibility. These are the justice people. They're always doing everything right, Condemning everyone else, I must, you must. And of course, it gets tiring to live a religious life, and so we swing over to rebellion. And this is a, a false freedom. I just want to do whatever I want. It's not freedom for love's sake, it's freedom for selfishness' sake. And so here is, you know, I can't be good, and actually I won't be. I just want to do what I want to do. And we talked about how you can spend an entire life swinging between religion and rebellion. 
an entire life trying to be good, giving up hope, becoming rebellious, feeling super guilty and ashamed about that, swinging back over to religion. You can do that for your whole life long, and many people do. The best example of this is work, where you're religious, you do what your boss says for your work, and then you live for the weekend. You can be free. It's kind of like that. The way out of these extremes that avoid relationships is to choose relationship. Now, how do we choose relationship? How do we have a desire for, for love and relationship, to be in right relationship with God and others? How do we have a desire? Now, if we think the truth problem is hard, this is harder. I don't know how many people have said to me, uh, Pastor Greg, they always say Pastor Greg just before they're going to say a negative thing. They say, uh, they say Pastor Greg, uh, I'd really like to do this whole Christianity following Jesus thing. Really, it sounds like a super good idea, and I'm very happy for you. But, uh, but I don't, I'm not feeling it. And sincerity is a big value of mine. Their voice goes up at the end. It's a big value of mine. And I don't want to be insincere in following God, so I'm going to change when I feel like it. And since I respect you, I'll let you know when that feeling arises. But until then, I can't do what Jesus says, or I can't follow the truth, because that would be insincere of me. And you wouldn't want that for me, would you now, Pastor Greg? And so what we have, this is, this is a big deal. Because at the end of the day, we just don't want to. We don't have a desire for it. We don't have a feeling for it. And so we feel caught in between insincerity and obligation. Are you following me on this? I'm sure you've been there. I've been there often. Do I just do it out of obligation? Don't feel anything? Or do I wait for a feeling? Point three, what we talked about here is this word, it's not in your notes, uh, empathy. What we suggested is that the way to get out of this uh, conundrum, this difficulty of religion and rebellion, <clears throat> you know, rebellious people, super sincere, Selfish. Religious people, super dutiful. How do we get out of that? We create space in our hearts and lives to develop empathy toward God and others. And the primary way that you develop empathy is by listening. The example that we gave was the Old Testament prophets who came to the people and said, let me tell you, see what you're doing? Let me tell you the heart of God, how he feels about you when you do those alienating behaviors. It breaks his heart. The way that we change for love's sake is we listen to others until it impacts our hearts. Now I have to do this with my wife sometimes. She'll say that I'm doing something wrong, 
and I'm not feeling it. Otherwise known as I feel justified in my behavior. So since I wrote the course, I'm obligated to, uh, to listen. So what I'll do is I'll say, Debbie, I don't get it yet. Tell me again uh, how my behavior hurts you. She's more than happy to oblige. <laughs> and she will, uh, she will tell me again. Now listen to me. Uh, even then I might not get it. I was teaching a marriage course in the Philippines a few years ago, and I was talking about this stuff. And uh, this older gentleman put up, puts up his hand, and he says, uh, he says, you know, thank you, you know, Pastor Greg, so you know what's coming. Thank you, Pastor Greg. Um, how long exactly do I have to listen to my wife? <laughs> that was such an honest thing to say. You know, how long must I endure uh, this... And uh, this is what came into my mind, and I still think it's true. You listen long enough to care about their point of view. Sometimes it takes me a minute. Sometimes it might take me a few days before I care about what Debbie's feeling about my behavior and how I've hurt her. Isn't that horrible? It takes me a while sometimes. Now, what I could do is I could, because who wants to go there, right? So I'll just be dutiful, or I'll say, well, you have a problem, get over it. It's not easy to have a change of heart and to sit in the tension of trying to feel what another person feels about what I do. We avoid that. And as a result, we avoid repentance. I would venture to say that the truth issue is not nearly as difficult as the repentance issue. When I, when I look at Christians, when I look at society, I don't think we're well-trained, practiced in how to repent and how to stay in the uncomfortableness of, of shifting our emotions off of what I feel onto what you feel and to actually have a sorrow for sin. And the only way that I know to have a genuine sorrow for sin is to soak myself in God's word and in prayer and listening longer to how my life has impacted him. It's a repentance issue. I have watched people take years to repent. Years. Some, in an instant, have no idea how to, you know, speed it up. But I know what's going on. So we confess, we're, we're, uh, we're saying out loud our sorrow about our self-centeredness. And there comes a time when you go, oh, God. Oh, God. I thought I was just you know, doing a, some drugs on the side. I didn't think it would affect anybody. It was just a couple beer. Nobody's looking when I'm alone, when I'm on the internet. Nobody's in my head. Whatever it is, and then there comes a moment when you go, oh, God. And that's called a godly sorrow. 
it's not just an embarrassment about getting caught. It's not about what other people are going to think of me. It's an other-centered emotion where you realize that what you've done has broken other people's hearts and disrespected them. So we confess, and then out of that confession of sorrow, we do number four, which is forsake our friendship with sin. The only way that you and I are ever going to stop sinning is if we value something more than personal pleasure. It's the only way you'll stop. You go, no, I'm justified. I feel fine. No, it's okay. I don't mind keep doing it. But you will forsake your friendship. And I, we use that word on purpose because sin has lots of benefits, if you haven't noticed. Lots of benefits. And the only way that we give up those benefits is we have a higher value, something that's motivating us more than just personal pleasure, desires. And that higher value is love. And for the love of God, we say no to the pleasures of sin. That's conviction. So, uh, truth, I get it. I see what needs to change in my mind and what's true and what's a lie. I can see it now. I can see that that's an alienating belief. I get it. Repentance says, oh, I've shifted my heart from self-centered desires to the desire to love God, to give and receive his love. I desire that. We have one problem left. I can't. I know what it is. I want to. I desire it, but I can't. I'm not strong enough to change. I remember the times in my life when I felt, and there's only one word that's appropriate, bondage. I felt powerless to change. I want, I desired to change. I was repentant, sincerely so. And I didn't feel as though I had the power. That's our final problem. Can you see how they fit? So what do we do with that? By faith, we do two things. We receive God's love by faith. So this is Galatians 5, 6b. So we said the joke is 5, 6a is on circumcision. We're not teaching about that today. 5, 6b says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So I desire it, and now by faith, I trust, receive love, I trust that I am forgiven and accepted, I'm fully known and embraced by the Father in that place. I receive it by faith. Not about my emotions, not about I receive what's true, and I trust more in what you say than in what I feel or think. It's faith. It's faith. What you'll discover as you try to change is there's no replacement for faith. There comes a point when we have to trust that what God says is true is true right now. And I can live differently because of what he's done, not because of who I am. If you go through truth and repentance and you end with trying harder, that's not a Christian process of change. And you'll fail. Where it ends up 
is not in your works, but in his. And he's the one who sets me free. He's the one who loves and forgives me. He's the one who gives me identity, a new identity, not based on my performance, but based on his choosing of me and loving me and knowing me. That's my identity. And by faith, I choose that now. It's a faith action. That's the book of James. And I give love. By the grace of God, we talked about how the grace of God is his empowering presence that gives us the ability, the empowering of his spirit to enable me to love God and to love others. And I love by grace, not by feeling it, not simply by desiring it, but by faith choosing it. There comes a moment when you have to leave behind your desires. You're going through them, but you leave them behind. And you live by faith, not by sight. You do what's right. And what you'll find is as you, as you obey in faith, you have, you, you, your feelings do catch up with that, but they don't lead it. They catch up with it. In conclusion, to, uh, this isn't in your notes, but it should be on the, uh, on the screen in a sec. To embrace truth, repentance, and faith, we crucify three things. Alienating thoughts, that's about truth. Alienating desires, that's about repentance. And alienating fears, that's about faith. The final enemy that needs to be crucified is our fears. I can't. I'm afraid I'll always fail. I'm afraid I'll always be rejected. I'm afraid that God isn't good. I'm afraid that I haven't been good. Whatever it is, the only way to conquer a fear is through faith, trusting in his goodness and his power to deliver us from our fears and to give us new life. So uh, let me encourage you. As a problem faces your life, whether it's an addiction, whether it's uh, tension at home or at work, whether it's thoughts that you can't seem to grab hold of and control, they just send you in directions. Ask yourself, is this a truth problem, a repentance problem, or a faith problem? Super helpful. And if it's a truth problem, it means that your, your thinking is separating you from God and others. If it's a repentance problem, it means you know what's true, but you, you find that your emotions and desires haven't caught up with that truth. And so now you know what to do. You know to sit with your father, to sit with those that you're in conflict with, and listen. Soak in his word. Listen to other people. And let your desires shift from being self-centered to empathic, to loving. And then finally, yeah, good, I want to, but I'm afraid. The remedy to fear is faith. I don't listen, I don't have confidence in my fears. I have confidence in you, Father, to deliver me from my fears, Psalm 34, because I fear you. It's you're the one that I trust. You're my deliverer. I don't, I don't trust in human willpower. I trust in you, and I'm going to exercise my trust in you now by doing something, by receiving love or giving love, because it's the only thing that matters. And then we discover that we're free.
and that God's changed us from the inside out. And the grand irony is we become happier simply because we followed his path, the resurrection path of death and resurrection. We're going to come in. If we can have the worship team come forward, we're going to have full communion today, which seems fitting. And so if those who are serving communion, if you can begin to distribute that, I would like to be able to pray for us. Um, and I, if I can also just say, next week, I'm really looking forward to next week because we've been doing uh, systematic teaching. And starting next week, we're just going to get into Bible passages and explore those. And I, I've missed doing that. So I'm looking forward to doing that with you. We're going to be looking at conversations with Jesus and uh, the things that Jesus talked with people about. We're going to be going through those for the next number of weeks, ending at, at Easter. Easter.